Well, it shouldn't be a surprise to you. We're going to be in the exact same place we were uh, this morning as we uh, walk through this. And there's a, a dense amount of practical application in this. Now, I think we have a couple runners in here with microphones. So, um, and I know, remind me to, let, to invite Pastor Jason up at the end of our study to announce uh, a church vote on adding new missionaries from Poland. So, um, with that being said, uh, what are some applications, observations, conversations that stood out to you this morning before we, we dive deeper into this text? Just some things that were meaningful to you. And if you just raise your hand, we want to run a mic to you. But let's begin by just kind of reminding ourselves of the context just a little bit. And while we do that, Zach, can you forward that just one click so that we can have the text up there? for us. Who wants to start out? Something that stood out to you? Observations, applications, anything. All right. We'll start right right over here, right right there. There we go. Oh boy, microphone. Okay. <laughs> um, I just found it kind of interesting um, that you had the two different cultures together you had the um i'm going to say the native sure yeah culture yep. and you also had the uh the other one yeah multicultural <laughs> the multicultural yep. yeah the, the grecian culture or the yep. grecian hebrew yep. um and when the i'm going to say spoils or when the uh, food was was handed out that one set of widows got more than the other, and they brought it to the attention of the apostles that, um, you know, this needs to be fixed. This needs to be evened out. Mm -hmm. And what I was wondering is that why would they, I guess, I guess they would pick on the, the one against the other because of the cultural differences, because one was better than the other. Mm -hmm. And so one uh, culture was left out more than the other. They were discriminated against. Yes. You know, so that yep. I just found that kind of interesting in the in the whole scope of this yes. situation. No, that's a great observation. It was a, a matter of discrimination based on they didn't look like, act like, think like, or have the same positions uh, than we did. Anyone, anyone else? Observations? Applications? Uh, Don, Don, there's a mic coming your way. Anyone other after Don, not other than Don, but after Don, keep in mind. Okay, and we got Heather right over here. Don, what do you have? I find it interesting that anywhere from ten to twenty thousand people in one church would get the approval altogether. Yeah. So to me, that's that shows that the work of the Holy Spirit was that doing yeah. it. It wasn't people. Yeah, absolutely. Good point. Heather. Coming together. Ooh, that's loud. How, like, how they, them coming together created um, it to spread, you know. And we, you know, these days we think we have to compartmentalize everything. Yeah. But that's not what they did. They invited everyone to join them. And they figured out how to, how to work with each other mm -hmm. and their differences. Yeah. So that's kind of beautiful. It's very beautiful. And there's a huge 
evangelistic footprint that comes when people see the church sacrificing for one another and creating that unity. We have uh, Paul's going to go first, and then under no circumstances, Steve, to get a mic. Paul, why don't you go first? I just thought it was interesting. We're kind of at the beginning of the church here. And, and yet it's, it's kind of normal. You know, there's going to be s- some stuff's going to happen. It's going to show up. Maybe the honeymoon's over, yeah. you know, and they're going to just have to deal with some stuff, such as the hypocrisy that they had before the lying, uh, this little issue, this grumble, you know, it's just, hey, welcome to real life. Right. And it's just stuff that's going to have to be dealt with within the body of, of believers within a, a church. I don't think there's a, a, a normal church or any church in the U.S. that would have that. No. It's going to happen there, too, you know. Stuff is going to happen along the way as you grow a church. And so how are we going to address that? How are we going to, are we going to do it in a godly way or are we going to make a big deal and make a mess? Right. Yeah. No, excellent point. Everywhere we go because it's people. Uh, Steve. I thought they came up with, a in the first century church, a very American, very Baptist solution. They had a problem. They formed a committee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and people starved to death. Um, no, I'm just teasing. I'm teasing. <laughs> yes. And it, what, it's a beautiful picture that they, you notice, um, I don't know if we have time to get into this, but they, they asked the congregation to choose men from among themselves, but then it went before the leadership of the church to be approved. And it's one of the reasons we kind of model our way after that as well. I saw a hand or a, oh, Dan, go ahead. I just love that the uh, word in Greek for complaint here is gungasmu. And I think it sounds funny. It does. I, and you pronounced it better than I did. I saw there was a lot of G's in it, so I decided to skip over it. <laughs> it does sound. It does sound better. But thank you for that astute observation. It does sound weird. Anyone else? Anyone else? Applications? Uh, yes, John. Okay, so far John has said if you look forward from this point, you'll see where where Paul would fit in. Do you want to unpack that a little bit? Well, you know, Paul wasn't a um, a Jewish Hebrew. Mm-hmm. He he was from Tarsus. He was uh, he he was um, outside, um, and just by putting um, this together, you could see that you know. Perhaps God is setting the stage for Paul and other priests mm-hmm. to um, to become obedient in the faith. Mm-hmm. All right. Amen. Great observation. Thank you, John. Anyone else? Um, Katie. I think it was just a really great warning to not turn those real issues into destructive topics. Mm-hmm. I know for me, it really hit me that the answer was not to create two churches, but to find how to bring unity in the, into the church. And that really, really hit me. Any other observations, thoughts, applications? Um, yes, right? I can't. Rebecca, I'm sorry. All I thought of is cake pops. Okay, but Rebecca. Just call me Zach Pops. <laughs> Please, Rebecca. Um. I guess my question is for the Helianistic Jews, the Septuagint reading. It was their widows that were being discriminated against. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the, the leaders were as balanced? Because 
you know what I mean, like to hand out the food and stuff, do you think that, and even when they elected the new people, do you think they took both sides, both people from the Helianistic and from the Native Jews to make their head leaders? Or you do mean you like think the, the group of seven that's up there right there? Yeah. Um, we're actually going to dive into that, but every name up there is is not a Hebrew name, it's a Greek or Hellenistic name. In fact, one of them is not Jewish in nature at all, Nicholas. So to answer your question, since since there was a an issue with the Hellenistic uh, widows being overlooked, uh, the Hebrew Jews were willing to concede and allow a whole group of Hellenistic men to address the issue, which is a huge, if you think about it, compromise and power release within the church. But that, that's an excellent, excellent answer. Anyone else? Anyone else? Going once. Going twice. I want you to think about spiritual cows, okay, in the church. When I say spiritual cows, I mean... Oh, sacred cows, yes. Oh, I'm sorry, Paul. Um, no, I'm just teasing. <laughs> Hebrew Jew. Um, uh, sacred cow ministries. Now, when I say sacred cow ministries... Give me some words that come into your mind. What does it mean, sacred cow ministry? We've always done that. Yes. Anything else? Traditional music. Okay. Sacred. The time of the service. Things that we must feed even at the health of the farm. Okay. They take up time, they take resources, and they are never, ever allowed to go to market, all right? I want you to think about that as we dive into this just a little bit. But as we do, let's have a brief word of prayer, and we'll unpack this. Tons of application here. Gracious Lord, without your Holy Spirit, we would not be able to understand your intent. But more than that, we pray that your intent would find fertile ground in our hearts. So go before uh, the text, go before the message, and prepare our hearts to receive it. Father, may we be a church that is unified around your Son, Jesus Christ. The end. And I pray this in your Son's precious name. Amen. All right, so let's start out with the words, the disciples were increasing in number and a complaint developed or a complaint arose. Now, there are two things that just kind of fall out of these words um, if we remember the surrounding context. And by the surrounding context, I mean Acts 1, really even Luke chapter 24, but Acts 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, all right? If we took a, a high flyover, if you will, to see the big picture of Luke's narrative and kind of see the, the pattern of the textual landscape. And here's what I want you to see. When we fly really high above the, the border, if you will, of chapter 1, and we see the rolling hills of 2 and 3 and a mountain of chapter 4, we'll see a pattern in the landscape that Luke alternates between the picture of the church inwardly and the picture of the church outwardly. Every chapter, we go inward, we go outward. And he just keeps vacillating on different mountaintops there. For, exa for example, chapter 1, the church is gathered together in the upper room in prayer. 
all right? And all of a sudden we have Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming in. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, all right, and the church are preaching and 3,000 get saved. So we see an outward view. The church is looking outward. Chapter 1, they're in the upper room. They're praying. There's inward. They're doing the prayers, the fellowship, the scriptures. Chapter 2, it's outward. At the end of chapter 2, near the beginning of chapter 3, they're breaking bread and having fellowship. That's inward. In chapter 3 of itself, the church is facing persecution from the Sanhedrin for evangelism. And we see that the church is trying to focus outward. In chapter 4, there's great generosity. People are selling their land. They're giving of their needs. And, and we see the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. So we see an inward look of the church. In Acts chapter 5, the disciples are getting flogged 39 times, spending the night in jail, being delivered by angels, and teaching Christ to the community. And we see the outward. So in chapter 1, it's, it, all the way to chapter 6, it is, it is inward, outward, inward, outward, inward, outward. Now you may say, okay, I got it, I got it. We're going back and forth here. What does this high aerial view of alternating emphasis tell us? Well, it seems as though we're being showed that the church has to maintain a balance of both an inward focus and an outward focus at the same time. There must be a biblical balance of both. In fact, we see it within the text here where the, where the apostle says we cannot neglect the word of God. We cannot neglect the prayer. You know, choose some, some men uh, uh, from among you that can do this so that the inward is not sacrificed and the outward is not sacrificed. If the church becomes too inward focused on the many pressing needs of the body, we begin to lose sight of our great commission. We lose sight of our great commission and we lose our sense of mission. And all of a sudden we're not, we're not sharing Jesus Christ like we should and we become a glorified YMCA country club where membership has its privileges. On the other extreme, if we're too outward focused, all right, and we don't minister to the needs of one another, if we're not loving one another, we, lose, we, we risk the loss of, of growing discipleship in the, true, in the church, raising immature petty believers and disciples for Jesus Christ who think salvation is nothing more than hell insurance as they run out into the week to satisfy all of their desires of their stomach. All right? The church must have a healthy balance of leadership direction and congregational participation where the outward is not forgotten and the inward is not neglected. And then he says, and so I guess the question there is, are we keeping that, that healthy balance? And not only are we keeping that healthy balance corporately, but are you keeping that healthy balance personally? Personally. It's all about spiritual discipline in that way. There ought to be some people who do not go to your church, who do not know Jesus Christ, that you have close personal relationships with. People that you talk to about your faith. Maybe it's a stranger. Maybe it's a co-worker, a family member. At the same time, we're investing in serving the body of Christ. Then he says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of spirit and of wisdom, that they may put, that we may put in charge of this task. Now, I don't know about you, but I was always taught in church growing up that this is the passage where deacons were introduced to the church. How many here were raised, Acts chapter 6 was a deacon passage? Anyone at all? I was. Okay, I was. However, and I want to say this with humility, Unlike, uh, like many other times in my life, this 
is not completely true. And I feel like sometimes I was just kind of taught some easy bullet points rather than text. It is best, when we look at this as a whole, not to interpret this as the first mention of the official office of deacon, okay? As we know them in the church today, but rather a temporary leadership team for a specific crisis, which is discrimination within the church and murmuring and complaining. These seven were not ordained to an office, but were commissioned to fulfill a specific administrative task. Now, I think if I remember that, is that supposed to be up there? I've got to find out here. Um, Oh, I guess not. All right. They're not ordained, but it's a specific administrative task. This may have served as kind of an early pilot test drive, all right, that they may have drawn from in the future. For deacons, but it is no way synonymous to it. And here's for a few reasons. And I think when we actually peel back the context and the historical background, it'll become exceedingly obvious to us. Okay? So here's here's the first strike against this is the first mention of the office of deacon in the church. Nowhere in the text are they ever called deacons. Now I think that's pretty significant. All right? Nowhere in the text are they ever called deacons. All right? While there is a biblical basis for having female deaconesses, we find that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 11. We find it in Romans chapter 16, where the feminine word for the, for the word deaconess is found. Does anyone remember her name? What was her name? What was it? Dorcas? Dor- did it, what was it? Wasn't it Phoebe? Thank you, yes. It was Phoebe, all right? And she was literally called a deaconess. First Timothy chapter 3 lends itself to that, way, that as well. You'll notice here that this office is to be made only of men. Only of men. Which tells us we're looking here at more of a church leadership team, if you will, or office on a temporary level. First Timothy chapter 3 allows for women to be deacons. Romans chapter 16 tells us about Phoebe. And we'll notice here, though, that they are to be only made out of men. Well, we will later see the office of elders in the book of Acts. And by the way, every time you see the word elders in the New Testament, it is written in the plural form. It's one of the reasons we transitioned away from our old structure into the newer structure of a plurality of leadership found within elders of the church. So while elders is always found in, uh, in the plural, and we will see it in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 14, I believe it is. Acts chapter 14, you will find elders. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Grab this. There is never, ever, ever the mention of the office of deacon anywhere in the entire book of Acts. Nowhere. Now that would seem a little strange if we're looking at the early church and and deacons are being established in chapter 6 and then Paul's going to override later the, the male requirement. Seems a little odd that we never see deacons in the book of Acts, which would lend itself to the office of deacon being created later in the life of the church. And we see it popping up in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 8 through 13. And there we finally see the title diakonos, or both in the male and in the feminine part of the Greek, all right, where they are called servants. And because it is a servant and not a leadership position, 
We firmly believe here that elder leadership needs to be strong, biblical male leadership. But underneath that, it was acceptable. All right? Also, let us remember that every man chosen here, now this is a little cultural detail, is, and Rebecca brought this up, all right, is Hellenistic. They are Greek. Every person here is a Hellenistic Jew, which means their homes were where? Where were their homes? Someplace other than the Jerusalem church. In fact, where was Barnabas from? He was a, he was a Dispora Jew, a Levite who owned land, another one of those compromisers. All right, where was he from? Anyone? It starts with a C. Cyprus. I believe it is Cyprus, right? And so these are the, the Jews coming in Acts chapter 2. Now, they came from everywhere under earth and under heaven, it says, okay? From Greek territories and countries, which means they're going to be heading home soon. It would seem odd for the Jerusalem church, all right, to create a permanent office of deacon filled by men who are going to leave very soon to a different country and leave this area. That would be like us, if I, and this is a poor example, but maybe you could grab the spirit of it. It would be like us deciding to, to make all of the deacons college students. Where are the college students going? Talk to me. They're going away. <laughs> that might not be the best option, all right? So, as we look at here, to use this verse as a means to, and I mean this with humility, disqualify women as deaconesses, or override the teaching of Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3, one would have to take it out of its context, dismiss historic background, which to do, show, to do so with love and humility um, is not intellectual integrity, all right? It's more of a strong desire for a personal position. So with all that being said, it is best to see it like this. It is a temporary leadership position made up of all men, leadership position, for a very specific need that once alleviated was brought to a completion. In fact, we never hear about this team again. And we never see the word deacon in the word of Acts, in the book of Acts. Which by the word, by the way, I want you to kind of kind of tune in here, was was um brought to completion once the issue was brought to, to, was alleviated, which, by the way, is another no-no in our circles, all right? Now, you may say, what word is a no-no? Here it is. It was brought to a, or it was brought to an end. It was brought to an end, which, by the way, brings up another application right out of the bat. It is okay to bring, and Paul, I want you to amen this as a missionary that's been on the field and you and I have shed very similar blood. So I'm just going to talk to Paul for a minute. It is okay to end a ministry. Amen? Okay, thanks, Paul, for that silent approval. All right, no, I'm just... It's okay to bring things to an end. Especially if it's accomplished its goal or no longer does its job. You know, sometimes when churches are small, we have these ministries and they become very precious to us. They become very precious to us. And then maybe the church grows or, some, or, or community changes or whatever the case may be. And we hang on to that. that. But this was really important when the church was 12 people. Well, the church is 20,000 now. How many here can agree that a ministry designed for 12 is not going to fit 20,000? Can I get a witness to that at all? Of course not. It's okay to bring it to an end. There is no failure 
and stopping what is not working or here it is has crossed the finish line what was the purpose for this ministry well we were hoping to do this did we do that yeah we did that why are we still doing it because we can't bring anything to an end or we'll feel like a failure failure that's like me sprinting with all my might crossing the finish line the tape snaps and what do i keep doing talk to me i just keep running you're going to say that guy is out of his mind he's crossed the finish line it's okay to stop Churches too often hang on to, and here it is, sacred cow ministries. Sacred cow ministries. We hold on to them way too long. And all it does is hurt the effectiveness of the church because we're putting all of our time. How many here have noticed when you were, when you were younger, you had all the energy you needed. You're still young. You're still, I'll talk to you. Okay. <laughs> And when you were younger, no, you had all the energy you needed. And on top of that, when you were younger, did you ever know this thing called emotional bandwidth existed? Anyone? Emotional energy. Is emotional energy a real thing? Yeah, it is. I came into church today and like, did you hear about bang, 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 and so-and-so passed away, and so-and-so this, and so-and-so that, and what about this, and what about that? And I just kind of went, I got I to gotta sit down, all right? We have limited energy. We have limited emotional bandwidth. And sometimes when we can't slaughter the fatted calf, we're only hurting ourselves. So here's my question to you, all right? We're, un- we're, we're putting too much of our limited energy into things that no longer need that precious limited resource, which is our energy and time. So here's my question to you. What are some sacred cow ministries that you ever came in contact with in a church other than this one? Just so we can be loving to one another. Sacred cow ministries not allowed to end. Come, come heat wave or high water. You see what I did there? I did not say the word hell. All right. Heat wave or high water. Did, did I see your hand? Oh, you stole my thunder. Let's just click the button here, all right? I think it is, yes, the, the, the bus ministry in our first church in Vassar, Michigan. Oh, oh, you would have thought that, that, that Jesus was not born of a virgin if we were even contemplating not rolling that bus down the road, even though we weren't picking up any people. We're picking up no one, and we are gassing up that thing at the exorbitant price of 78 cents a gallon, all right? This is 25 years ago. Who's, who remembers 78 cents a gallon, all right? Awesome. Some of you with gray hair or little hair remember it less than that, all right? I don't know why I pointed at you, brother, but I don't care, all right? Stop being a sacred cow, all right? Now, bus ministry, even though we weren't picking anything up, anyone else, anything else that comes to mind? witnessing like i mean a style of witnessing because we should witness i'm just going to call you right out on that (laughs) okay maybe the program that we're running yes (laughs) we are not witnessing anymore we got limited energy (laughs) potluck after the service paul what do you got okay yep Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And it's got to be done this way. 
Oh, I remember when we removed the track rack and behind the church when we first got here. We had a track, a track rack that would rival the, 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 the Library of Congress. And it was beautiful there. No one took care of it, but it was beautiful, all right? We finally got rid of that. You would, have, you would have thought, I remember one time a gentleman took me out to eat and he just ripped me up and down. Michelle, you know this, up and down. He's like, I can't believe you did this. And I'm like, Phil, it's not Phil. That's a generic name I like to use. All right, is there a Phil here today? I'm like, Phil, we took that away eight years ago and I've been mad for eight years. And then he proceeded to give the waitress a track and show me how to do it in front of her. And she was like, hey, listen, I'll come back, all right? But it was very interesting. Any other sacred cows? Yes, Carol. Missionary closet. <laughs> Some churches still have them, and they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They're weird, but they are our... No, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Our, I sit at a different church, although when I first got here, there was an, a used bottle of Pepto-Bismol in there, and I thought, they ought to be thankful. It was three-quarters full. And, uh, but yes, okay. Any other sacred cow ministries? My daughter just ended the Awana program at their church. Okay, Word of Life ministry programs. He said Awana. But, but all ministries should be evaluated. Are they still working? Are they effective? I remember in Vassar, maybe you remember this, honey, we had to have a Christmas cantata, and we had to have a choir come heat wave or high water in fact, the Christmas cantata. Michelle, what was the name? Would it have to be? Does anyone know Jonathan Peterson? I don't. I don't because I don't know music. But it had to be that. But didn't he share a stage with Jimmy Swagger one year? So he's disqualified, all right? He is out of here. Unless we can connect him to John MacArthur, we will never sing him again. We had to have a choir... Baby, you remember this, don't you? Remember when we had to have special music even if no one could sing? Do you remember that? Oh, that was brutal. It was brutal. We had men get up there and whistle for special music. Hymns, all four verses. Now, I want you to think about that. I'm talking right now, Patty. All four verses. What's that? What were you saying? That church or this church? No, first church in Vassar. Yeah. No, you guys are great. (laughs) All right. All four verses he would whistle. Now, I think I've told you this before, but after the first verse, verses 2, 3, and 4 sounded very similar to the ones before it. We had people who couldn't carry a tune in a bucket to save their lives. And maybe they were making a joyful noise to the Lord. It certainly made me joyful, all right? Because I find entertainment in extremes. Can I get a witness on that? I either want to hear someone who is the best singer I have ever heard in my life, or I want them to slaughter that sucker, because on both sides, I find great entertainment, all right? Now judge me, I don't care, all right? We had to have a choir, even if we had no one who could sing, and we'd get up there and we would slaughter several songs like Fatted Calves in the Name of Ministry in front of annual visitors who came once a year and then never came back again. And can you blame them? It was a massacre of music. But here it is. The cow stayed alive. I want you to notice something here. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith. He'll be stoned later. Full of the Holy Spirit. Philip. And then a, and then a bunch of other nice guys. And then Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Antioch. 
Now, all these men have Hellenistic names. Those culturally compromising, Septuagint-reading, Greek-speaking Jews from different countries. And Nicholas was not even a Jew at all. He was a proselyte. He was converted. And he was from a completely different land. Now, don't let this slip by. Which of these two groups felt slighted and overlooked? Rebecca brought that up. It was the Hellenistic group. Look at who the Hebrew or native Jews agreed on. All seven are Hellenistic. It's a demonstration of loving unity in the church. Since the Hellenists felt slighted, the Hebrews agreed to appoint all seven Hellenistic men to a temporary leadership team to, 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 to address this issue. It shows a power release in the church for the sake of unity on cultural differences. And here's a lesson here. Now, this should be applied in all directions, by the way. We should be willing to let go of our power blocks of control in areas of cultural differences in desires and preferences when the unity of the church and the gospel mission is at stake. I'm not talking about doctrinal issues here, but this is not what I grew up with. And my guess is it is not what you grew up with. I grew up in the 80s and the 90s, the best music ever, all right? But I grew up in the 80s and 90s in in a culture war within the church that was horrific. And the, and the spiritual blood of the saints were all over the pews. And we did not fight over doctrinal purity. In fact, we could click it if you wanted to. We didn't fight over doctrinal pu- uh, uh, purity. We fought over jeans. We fought over guitars, organs, pianos, hairstyles, drums, movies, cards, music. We, we spend all of our time championing a brand rather than a savior. And you say, how can you say that? Look at what we fought over. It wasn't over. Are we, are we keeping a balance of inward and outward? And are we, are we utilizing our resources in a way to bring people to Jesus Christ and have deep, meaningful discipleship where they love Jesus, not, not just feel a sense of duty? Oh, that all of us would have the heart of the Hebrew Jews here who released power, who saw that their cultural positions are not as important as the unity and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And it is here that we often make a big mistake. We tend to think that our culture or our personal positions, or our personal passions, are somehow protecting the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to be dogmatic about this. They do not. They do not. Obedience to the Word of God does. Teaching the truth of the Word of God. Loving one another does. And look what happens when we keep the majors the majors, and the minors the minors. The Word of God kept kept spreading. There it is. And it increased greatly. How? Well, there's a lot of answers to that, but let's stick to the specific answer in the text right here. It kept going because of the sacrificial love for one another on cultural issues that were not biblical precepts. Describe that. Sacrificial love for one another on cultural or personal issues that were not biblical precepts. I want to stop right here. Often this application is aggressively preached to the more traditionally minded. How many here are traditionally conservative minded by nature? I am. I am. Okay? I, 
I, I feel most comfortable in that. Give me a good hymn, 10 hymns, and then maybe a pre-approved praise chorus, and I'm good to go, all right? So often, how many here have ever felt that whenever we are talking about compromise and loving people, it's a message that's always being taught to the, to the traditionally-minded members of the church and not so much the liberty-minded people of the church? Well, I want to reverse that here this evening for just a little bit because it's just as true in the other direction. It's just as true in the other direction. In fact, it needs to be synonymous from both sides. So I want to say to those of us who are more liberty-minded and, and, and maybe uh, don't, uh, don't read the King James or wear your pair of jeans or whatever the case may be, it is just as wrong for you and me to demand concessions of the traditional conservative-minded believers while offering none of our own. We cannot hold the church hostage here. In my second church, in an effort to... Where's my brother John? My brother John. Him and I went to this church together. My second church, in an effort to change the culture, because that's the goal, isn't it? That's the goal. The church... And to change the culture of the church, the lead pastor told me it was, I was forbidden to wear a tie to Sunday services. I like wearing ties. I don't have one on tonight. In fact, I tried to dress as balanced as possible. Look at this. Jeans, dress shoes, no tie, but a jacket. I mean, I am all things to all people right now. Either all of you are mad at you or all of you are pleased with me, all right? Or I'm a compromiser somewhere in there. But he said, you want to know what? From now on, Brett... You are forbidden to wear a tie on Sunday. Hymns were all but banned. The sermon became a moral object lesson. The King James Version was not allowed to be used in the church. And then I was told, the reason we are doing this is we're trying to create an atmosphere of acceptance. Now, what's so funny? (laughs) No, it's not. It's not current and relevant. Now, those of you know, I'm pretty su- super hip, and I would describe my ministry as dope and lidded, all right? But I thought to myself, because we have to be intellectually consistent, right? We have to be intellectually consistent. How are we creating an atmosphere of acceptance and tolerance? By banning the traditional culture from our midst. How are we being accepting and loving by, by trying to root out all traces of our heritage. It is not accepting to ban traditional culture in our midst. It is the antithesis of acceptance. This is just as tolerant, or, I'm sorry, this is just as intolerant as any other direction. It's just as intolerant as the guy with the suit coming and saying, you need to do this. Or the guy in jeans says, you need to concede this. Both of them Need to go in both directions. A person in a suit, this is what I'm trying to get to. A person in a suit and tie and a dress who loves the hymns and loves the sound of the old King James language should be able to worship in harmony, sitting next to a person with jeans on with a cup of coffee in his hand, singing together both sacred, old, and new music as long as it is doctrinally accurate and glorifying God. Because I want to tell you something, part of your act of worship might be singing a song you don't like for your brother and sister in Christ and for the glory of the Lord. 
Here's what I'm trying to get at. The goal is not culture. The goal is not culture. The goal is Jesus Christ. And when Christ is the goal, concessions in both directions fall in love, and we see that in this text here. So with all that being said, let's peel back all this busyness and just let the pure text, and as an instant application to this, we are going to read it from the King James Virgin. King James Virgin is what I said. Version, all right? We'll just let the pure text read, and we'll, I'll color commentate as we go. Now, in those days, as they were growing greatly in number, and by the way, people were fearful to join them, yet they were multiplying greatly because hypocrites were fearful to join the church. Only those fully committed to the cause of Christ would get involved in this kind of group of people. And when the number of the disciples multiplied, oh, we're talking 10, 20,000, there, there arose a, a need in the church that outstripped the administration of it. And, and there were those who began to have fried apostle for dinner and fried church members for dinner and they began to complain and murmur that the Hellenistic Jews uh, were and against the Hebrew Jews because the Hellenistic widows were being neglected in their daily uh, administration because they're from a different culture. They're multicultural. They're reading from the wrong version. They don't have the same, same standards as we. So, so you know what? We're going to church mafia them and starve them to death out of the fellowship. And then the twelve called the multitude of disciples unto them and said, it is not good for us to leave the Word of God and to serve tables because if we do this, it's not because of pride. It's not because of pride, but of priority. And if, if our energy is going all towards this, the outward focus of the church will be gone and we will, we will kill ourselves. So in order to keep a balance of the outward and the inward, uh, inward stuff, brethren, look from among you seven men, which tells us we're looking at kind of a leadership team. We'll never see them again. Their deacons are never mentioned in the book of Acts. And these seven men are about to travel hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from here in a short period of time and go back home. Before, for, for this issue, find seven godly men who honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom you may appoint over this business in order to keep that balance we're going to be praying and we're going to be studying the Word of God. And they changed the way they did things. They adjusted. Because the organization of the church is not more important than the organism that is the church. And it pleased the whole multitude. And they chose all Greek and Hellenistic brothers in Christ. One was a proselyte whom they set before the apostles. And when they prayed, they laid their hands on them and say, take care of this issue. And because of that, that concession and that love for one another, that unity in the church, because unity in the church is not the absurd idea of breaking us into groups so we don't have to sacrifice anything. The unity of the church and the love for the Word of God the word increased, and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And so powerful was a unified church that was unified, not about everyone agreeing on everything, but everyone agreeing on one thing, that Sadducees came to faith. You know the price 
it would take for a Sadducee to denounce their theology and join this group and were obedient in the faith. Gracious Heavenly Father, give us the same heart that these early believers had. A heart that loved you, wanted to love you more than they loved themselves. Father, protect our church from disunity by an eager desire to self-sacrifice. Because, Lord, that's what you did for us. No greater love does a man know than when a friend lays down his life. You were that ultimate friend. Help us to do the same towards one another in the church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.